This week on The Sport Blokes. This week, the BBL finals are in full swing. Eddie's in hot water again. More basketball, because we just can't help ourselves. A New Zealand man channels his inner Daryl Braithwaite, and February 1st might just be the most interesting day of the year. Another huge week, let's go. Alright, Stewie, as we do at the top every week, what caught your attention? And what'd you miss? Well, you're going to love this one, Nathan. Now, everyone who's listened to us should know by now that you don't have particularly strong feelings towards Tom Brady, except feelings of <laughs> pure hatred, I guess. <laughs> Close to. <laughs> well, I saw a tweet from someone outlining the reasons why Tom Brady isn't the GOAT broken down year by year, and I, and I thought I'd just present a few of them for you uh, just to see what your thoughts are. So, we'll start off 0102 and 0304, bailed out by Adam Vinatieri. Yes, and we'll bring that up later today. Uh, 0607, lost to the Colts in the AFC Championship game. Yeah, well, no shame in that. 0708, owned by the Giants and an 18-0 team, so that was a pretty bad year for him to, to finish off losing to the Giants. Yeah, the David Tyree helmet catch. We'll never forget that one. Yes. And there's a whole bunch of other ones where they've lost in the, the first week or the divisional games. But 14-15, bailed out by Malcolm Butler, and he cheated. Well, bailed out by horrible play calling by the Seattle offense, it's got to be said, because it never should have even been thrown. It should have been a running play. Hand it to Marshawn Lynch who was in career best form at the time. Beast mode. Run it in. Exactly right. And it kind of goes on. There's a whole bunch of different sort of aspects in terms of losing to different teams or being bailed out by different players. But I just thought as someone who's not a big fan of Tom Brady, that really caught my attention to something you might enjoy. Well, it's funny you mention this, Chewie, because I actually saw the tweet as well. It was probably when I was using the Sport Blokes account, which we don't plug enough. So we haven't had any mailbag questions for a few weeks. So at Sport Blokes on Twitter or sportblokes at gmail.com. But yeah, I saw that too. And look, Working in his favour, he definitely is in the conversation. He probably is the GOAT, but gee, it does take a lot of luck to win championships, and he has had a lot, and he's played on very good teams, and he's been in a terrible division. There are a number of reasons why you could say that maybe it's not a foregone conclusion that he's the GOAT. That's saying nothing of the fact that the offensive rules are way more protective of quarterbacks these days than they were when Joe Montana played, for example. Very, very true. Anyway, before I let you go off on an hour and a half rant on Tom Brady... Oh, and I could. What caught your attention, though? Well, sure, since we last recorded, it's been a week of teams that have no one to blame but themselves for giving games away, I reckon. We had Adelaide and the Sydney Thunder in the BBL. We had the Bulls, Celtics and Nets in the NBA. And of course... Well, the Perth Wildcats, which we'll get to. But speaking of the Wildcats game, that's what caught my attention. It was Andrew Gaze saying during the broadcast against the South East Melbourne Phoenix that he used to strap his own ankles in the NBA, much to the surprise of all the players and medical staff around him. Yeah, wow. I mean, I guess he probably had a way that he liked it and didn't trust someone else to do it. But geez, I mean, playing for the Spurs and I mean, I guess the Washington Bullets back. Yeah, Bullets back then, of course, the but, year 94. Uh, yeah, playing for, for those two teams. I mean, the Spurs, you would imagine, would have had a pretty decent guy doing the taping. So, yeah. Not if you ask Kawhi Leonard, but uh, that oh, was just well. an excuse. That was just an excuse to piss off back home to California. Um, yeah, well, he, he did say in the broadcast that basically he knew how to do it and he could do it better because it was his own body. So, But I, I still found that quite interesting. Mm. What'd you miss, mate? Well, look, I managed to catch a lot more NBL this week, including going to the Wildcats heartbreaker against the Phoenix. And I, I have to say, yes. usually I give any game I'm amped for the kiss of death, but the Brisbane Cairns game will be tough to beat for <laughs> game of the season. But I did miss the 36 and Kings game, which was an absolute beauty. And I, I didn't see much of the AFLW over the weekend either, I guess. So that's probably more what I missed. How about yourself? 
Well, speaking of the AFLW, Stewie, that's a perfect segue because what we missed was the AFLW, the Dockers and GWS match. We had tickets and we were literally about two minutes away from parking and going into the stadium when one of my mates gives me a call and we won't mention names because we protect the innocent, but shout out because I know he'll be listening. He gives me a call and says, oh, mate, uh, you might want to consider or reconsider going into the ground because Perth's gone into a COVID lockdown. So the chaos ensued and the shit hit the fan. So we decided that we wouldn't go to the game. We'd do the right thing because we were missing the one thing you don't want to be missing under these circumstances, Stewie. The vaccine? <laughs> okay, maybe the other thing. Well, bog roll, clearly. Bog roll, yes. We didn't have dunny paper. Oh, sorry, for the Peruvian audience uh, out there, that's toilet paper. We had one more roll at home. So <laughs> instead of going to the ground, we went to Mosman Park, Woolworths, and it was absolute bedlam. I reckon the line would have been two, two and a half hours. The only reason it was moving is because people were leaving it. So we didn't even bother and... Luckily managed to get our hands on some tissue boxes and uh, then luckily managed to get some bog roll at a servo. So, so we escaped in the end. But uh, yeah, interesting times here in Perth because there's massive bushfires too. There's already nearly 60 homes that have been destroyed. So Perth's been pretty lucky uh, in these tough times, but we are copying the brunt of it at the moment. And I will also just say for our Peruvian listeners, it's actually papel higienico. Oh, very good. So there you go. There you go. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, the bloody hell this week has a touch of deja vu to it. We're heading back to New Zealand, this time to the Trenton race course, about 30 minutes northeast of Wellington, where a man's decided to one-up one of his fellow Kiwis. Oh. You might remember in October, a gentleman wandered onto a track near Auckland right in front of the horses in the Great Northern Steeplechase. Well, that bloke at least had the excuse that his tee shot was on the track, but our friend down at Trenton <laughs> did not. He just decided after what I can only assume was a couple too many to just yes. run out onto the track right in front of a very full field about 150 metres from the finish line. It's astonishing he didn't get himself killed. Well, most of the racers didn't actually see him until very late, and I seriously have to commend all of them for not killing this guy. Oh, it's incredible. No surprise that he was arrested, but gee whiz, like, what sort of punishment is suitable for that? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd be interested to know what the punishment comes down as, actually. I mean, you would have to go think... lifetime ban from the stadium and a fairly sizable fine. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what, what are the streaking fines here these days? They're like 20, 10, 20,000 bucks. Well, I think it's actually more at the moment because of COVID and then basically referring to the fields as like a biohazard area. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a little bit more. Oh, that's right. There was that bloke that crowdfunded, tried to crowdfund for 50 grand or something, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, yep didn't get too far thankfully but uh but but then all of that before two tv cameras caught two more guys doing a nudie run around the track between races like what the hell is going on in trenton oh stewie the races just seem to be an excuse to let all civility go out the window don't don't they? they they really do so for new zealand continuing to give us crazy stories all i can say is thank you and bloody hell bloody hell well should we get into the news roundup night Yes, Julie, let's do it. And another huge week. And by the way, we didn't even talk about Conor McGregor losing in the UFC last week. We can only cover so much. But the footy world, there's an update in the Collingwood racism saga. So just a bit of background, I guess. Collingwood commissioned the Do Better report after former player Heredia Lumumba launched legal action through the Supreme Court for failing to protect him from racism. Now, as we mentioned before, he didn't participate in the interviews. And there's reasons why, and we can understand that. But 30 other individuals did. 
Now, Stewie, I thought maybe the best way to just show the sides to the story and maybe contrast the prevailing views and thoughts are just going through some quotes. And since it's all about him, I'll start and finish with club president Eddie Maguire, who led an hourish press conference yesterday. We're recording on a Tuesday rather than a Monday tonight, which is kind of good because there's been updates. But anyway, a few quotes I'll cherry pick here. So Eddie said, well, he opened the press conference with, I don't think there's any shame or disappointment here. This is a day of pride. We're not a mean-spirited club. We're not a racist club. We're not rejecting any part of the report. Now I'll read some quotes from the report. The AFL club is guilty of fostering systemic racism that has resulted in profound and enduring harm to First Nations and African players. The report said that Collingwood's responses to instances of alleged racism were, quote, at best ineffective or at worst exacerbated the impact of racist incidents. Further quotes, Collingwood claims to be guided by four formal values, belonging, commitment, releasing potential and caring, there is a gap between what Collingwood Football Club says it stands for and what it does. And by the way, this was backed up by former player Daniel Egan on his social media recently. And then also it said, while claims of racism have been made across the AFL, there is something distinct and egregious about Collingwood's history. So pretty scathing there. And then I guess the other key player, or perhaps the most key player in the whole thing, Lumumba said, It was very disturbing to see how easily Eddie and the board members reduced the severity of this profound and enduring harm to mere mishaps as if they were talking about spilling tea on a couch rather than being found guilty of years of systemic racism. What I saw yesterday was a clear case of cowardice. It was a clear case of a football club that was delusional, a club desperate in its damage control, and it was completely tone deaf to where the world is right now. Thoughts, Drew? Yeah, I mean, I guess you can't really sum it up any better than the name of the report. Do better. Yes. I mean, the, the, <laughs> I think the big issue for me, certainly from yesterday, was definitely the lack of a sorry of any kind. Yes, he apparently didn't say it once. And I must admit, I didn't I didn't watch any of the press conference because it was so long, but I've done a lot of reading about it. Yeah, I saw some, some of the, the I, I say in inverted commas, the highlights. And uh, yeah, definitely not any sorry of any kind. And more so, you know, the use of the words historic and proud day, I think those two things in particular... There's nothing short of disgusting, really, considering what this is all about. Look, credit where credit's due. Eddie did come back on today and admit that there was a major error on his behalf, but the damage is kind of done, I think. Well, and it's, I'm glad you said that, because I want to read a quote from that today, because it says to me that Eddie still doesn't get it. So, regarding the proud comments yesterday, he said today, I got it wrong. I said it was a proud day and I shouldn't have. I did not mean we were proud of past incidents of racism and the hurt that it caused. I am not. It's been interpreted widely that way, and I regret that deeply. Did anyone honestly interpret it that way? No. <laughs> like, really? That is not how people interpreted it. The reason people said that he was full of shit is because they didn't choose to release this report. It's been sitting around for six weeks. It was leaked to the Herald Sun, I think it was. So how can they say it's a proud day when they weren't even the ones that released it to the media? <laughs> Basically, this to me is, sorry if anyone got offended. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what it equates to to me. So yeah, they've royally screwed this up. They sure have. And he, of course, finishes at the end of this year, but there's loud cries for him well, to just piss off now. Yeah, it, might, it, could be, it could be earlier. And all this, Eddie's good for the game. I, I just, I don't know how good he is for the game. But I dare say none of this surprises me, because this is the bloke that seemed to say all the right things about the Adam Good saga and then proceeded to make a joke about King Kong on the radio hours later. So clearly he doesn't see this as big an issue as what it is. No, and, and it will be interesting to see what he's like when he isn't a president of a club. I mean, obviously he'll still have his bias towards Collingwood, but you know, I'd like to think that as a commentator, 
he's pretty interesting to listen to. I don't mind listening to him. I know a lot of people do, but I, I don't mind him at all. But yeah, some of the stuff he's said in the past few years is just, it's so tone deaf and it's just, it's ridiculous. Now we have a bit more, I don't know, a lighter tone now, Stewie. Yeah, I mean, a lot of potential bloody hellworthy bits this week, definitely including this one. So probably not <laughs> usually a whole lot of hype over the Erste Divisie or First Division of Dutch soccer, especially a game between 19th ranked Den Bosch and 12th ranked Excelsior, especially after Excelsior went 3-0 up after 46 minutes. But yeah, then came what has been dubbed the Jizz Horncamp Show. <laughs> Jesus. Look, before I go on, I should mention that Jizz Horncamp is a striker for Den Bosch. It's, it's nothing else. He, he is a player. But look, he scored twice to get it back to 3-2. And then after a penalty for Excelsior, he scored twice more to level it at 4-4. So he's, he's scored four goals in the second half of the match, due partly to some really horrendous defending, including the Excelsior keeper basically overrunning the ball to let him waltz in for his fourth, but still... Dare I say, Stewie, that when you score, you often it does involve jizz. It, it, well, yes, it does. <laughs> there's no, there's no way around <laughs> it. Really, is there? I that one. Now, American sports blog Deadspin said SBV Excelsior was apparently unaware of Dan Bosch's ability to quickly rise up, and on Saturday got caught up in a sticky situation after getting <laughs> out to a three 0 lead and seemingly being in the pink. Excelsior didn't count on Jizz Horncamp. Oh uh, yes. Now, the other really hilarious part about this is on Twitter. Trending in the United States, jizz. <laughs> yes. Okay. I actually saw one user say she's never been more terrified to click on a trend before. <laughs> fair enough, too. So, yes, I, I dare say that Denbosch are going to be getting a fair bit more attention than they have in previous years because of this brilliant player, Jizz Camp, you champion. Speaking of funny names, Stewie, it reminds me of Gregor Fuchka, spelt F-U-C-K-A, who played for Italy in the basketball yeah. about, what, 15, 20 years ago? A, a while ago. Certainly when we were juvenile enough to, well, we still probably are, actually. but It's but, probably over 20 years ago, actually. Yeah. We're probably talking late 90s, yeah. Yeah, yeah it would have geez. been. So, yeah, it, look, there have been some absolute classic ones out there. We could do an entire show just on that, quite frankly. <laughs> Maybe we will. But, uh, look, for now, let's move on. There's been some crazy trade news in the NFL. Yeah, that's right, Stewie. Although the Super Bowl is just around the corner. Silly season in the NFL has started for 30 out of the 32 teams well and truly. It's been reported by Adam Schefter that as many as 18 quarterbacks could be changing teams or retiring. Yes, that's right. Nearly two-thirds of the league. But what's kicked it off is the Detroit Lions have sent Matthew Stafford to the LA Rams for Jared Goff for a third-round pick in 2021 and first-round picks in 2022 and 2023. It's the first exchange of former number one overall picks in the common draft era since way back in 1967. Wow. And I guess this is also on the back of the Deshaun Watson trade demand. He's officially put mm. his name out there. I saw a very interesting tweet from Houston Chronicle sports writer John McClain who said, yippee ki motherfucker. Wait, no, no, <laughs> wrong John McClain. What he actually said was they'll want two first-rounders, two second-rounders, and two young defensive starters at the least. And every response I saw to that was along the lines of it's going to take way more than that. So Yeah, well, we'll take a king's ransom, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, we're essentially expecting that this will be the second time a Houston team has asked another team to mortgage their future to take a superstar off their hands. Yeah, well, this is absolutely right. And it's things are going funny in the baseball. So it hasn't been good for Houston sports <laughs> for the last couple of years. I have a bad feeling that the Patriots might swoop in and get him, but uh, we'll we'll come back to these stories as they as they roll on. I heard Miami was listed as a possibility as well. Yeah, no, I could see why why they would put their hand up. They do have Tua Tuguvaloa, but he has been a little bit shaky. So yeah, I could see why they might want to do that. 
And finally, Stewie, I guess we're kind of bookending with some, I don't know, more serious or bad news. You've got an update on Patrick Reed. Yes, old mate Patrick Reed. He's caused some more controversy, this time at the US PGA Farmers Insurance Open. What a ridiculous name for a golf tournament, by the way. So, as we know, he's got a bit of a history of bending the rules, so to speak. So, on the 10th hole, with a four-shot lead, Reed's played his second shot from a bunker, landed it in the rough on the left-hand side of the green, where it's kind of bounced once and settled into some nasty deep grass. Now, Rule 16.3 allows relief for a ball that's embedded anywhere in the general area, except when it's embedded in sand. So, essentially, if your ball breaks through the grass and is in the dirt underneath it, you are allowed to technically pick your ball up and place it above ground. So it's you know sort of taking away the, the disadvantage of that. But the, the whole point of it is that you're really supposed to speak to a rules official first so that they can determine whether or not the ball's actually broken through. Now, the whole problem with this is that Reed has got to his ball. He's asked whether anyone saw the ball bounce. He asked one of the local officials if they saw it bounce. Nobody, none of the marshals saw anything. So he's picked the ball up and basically then called an official over, who has agreed with him and said it was an embedded ball. But the problem is, because he'd, he already, picked it up. he'd already picked it up, and that's, yeah. the, that's the issue. So he's very, very fortunate that the official had agreed with him, allowed him to have, take a free drop and go on and make par from there. But a lot of people are saying that he really shouldn't have lifted his ball. He, he should have waited for the official to come through. And the, the other big problem is that he posted a, an explanation on Twitter not long after that, seven minutes after someone else had posted the exact same thing, which looked like a burner account, which everyone assumes is actually his <laughs> wife. So he's... Shades he's, of Brian Colangelo. Yeah, he's kind of, you know, bent the rules and then tried to justify it by making it even more dodgy. So uh, he's yeah, he's not playing things very smart, old Patrick Reed. And I heard the PTI blokes today talking about how he's pretty much universally hated on the tour. Oh, like yeah. Everyone thinks he's a dick. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone is going to be watching him and looking for any excuse to call him out on anything now. And basically, Rory McIlroy did a similar thing. In fact, I think we even spoke about it months ago. And everyone on the tour was like, oh, well, you know, Rory's a nice guy. Yeah, we like <laughs> because Rory, they yeah. hate Patrick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, from it's what I saw, Rory actually didn't even call an official over. He basically just picked the ball up and... Redropped it, checked with a couple of guys in his group, and they just said, Yeah, drop it a club length away. Okay. But everyone does like Rory, so you're right, he gets yep. away with it. There you go. Now, Stewie, we've got two huge stories in the cricket world. The first one is Langer's time up. The great cricketer blokes seem to think so. They talked about it extensively on their show today. Shout out to them. Now, Lang has been considered maybe too much of a hard ass, and someone within the playing group has leaked that he's too much of a hard ass. So he came out yesterday or the other day. Saying, and I quote, if players want someone to tickle their stomachs all the time, then I'm not doing my job, which is an early uh, quote of the year, I think. I'll, yeah, I, don't, I, quite I, don't, liked that I don't think he meant stomach. <laughs> but the great cricketer blokes have talked to players off the record, and it seems like there's an organized, it's, it's hard for me to use the word coup given what's going on in Myanmar, but it seems like there's an organized rebellion by the playing group against Justin Langer. Is his time up and is he too much of a hard ass? Yeah, this is the the time we live in, basically. If you don't like something that's above you or someone that's coaching you or teaching you, you just spit the dummy and off they go. (sighs) They potentially need to find someone somewhere in the middle, I guess, of Darren Lehman and Justin Langer. So I think Lehman was a little bit too far the other way. I agree, yeah. Too laid back. Yeah, they potentially need to find maybe an average of the two. And apparently Andrew McDonald is a real players coach, so he could be the next in line. 
As a West Aussie and as someone who's actually met Justin Langer on a couple of occasions, albeit very briefly, once was at the Cricket World Cup in Colombo when they were training in the nets, I'd be really disappointed. I think he's done good things for the team since Sandpaper Gate. But uh, as you say, if what the players want, they tend to get. We only need to look at the James Harden situation, don't we? Yeah, no, exactly right. And look, it's a shame. I mean, he's he said a number of times, yes, I get a bit grumpy. Yes, I get a little bit angry, but it's all because he wants to win. He wants his team to be successful. He knows the effort that these guys are putting in. I mean, what's the point in doing all of this training and putting all this effort in just to lose? Yeah, well, that's right. That's exactly right. And after some really poor times with discipline issues and, well, let's face it, cheating scandal, you kind of need a bit of a hard ass. But we are in this world of everyone gets a trophy these days, and this is how it is. Mm. Now, the other big news is that the tour of South Africa has been postponed. Now, if we'd recorded yesterday, we would have been talking about the test squad that was due to go to South Africa and the T20 squad that was due to go to New Zealand. And that in of itself is quite an interesting phenomenon that's fairly new to world cricket, where you have separate teams with separate squads. But now that it's been postponed, do we even talk about the T20 squad? Do they just blow it all up and potentially some of the test players will go over for the T20s? Yeah, well, I mean, immediately I'm looking at players along the lines of David Warner, you've got Mitchell Stark, you've got Steve Smith, you've come in, there's Pat Cummins, there's so many of these guys that could very easily slot straight into a T20 squad at the expense of some of these other blokes who have worked very, very hard as well. So, yeah, it's... It's going to be very interesting to see what the next 24 hours holds in terms of that. I think you're right. I think particularly on the bowling side. So if I look at the list here, I think Berendorf, McDermott, Kane Richardson, Riley Meredith, maybe. There's a few blokes there that would maybe be in a bit of doubt because of blokes like Cummins and, and Stark. I mean, look, Stark, he's not bowled amazingly in the test arena, but he is a proven wicket taker in the short form. So you would potentially like to see his pace, you know, the left-handed side of things. And yeah, look, guys like Jason Berendorf as a, as a left-hand fast bowler, I mean, he's bowled absolutely brilliant throughout the entire BBL. So there's going to be someone there who potentially is very unlucky to miss out, whether it be the guys that were in the test squad or someone in T20 that has to make way. So I guess we'll watch this space. We've had some big bash finals, which we'll talk about. Should we just move on to them now and see what happens with the squads? Yeah, I think so. So Stewie, if you ask me to define the big bash final series so far, I'd say that it's basically been a series of far too many dropped catches sandwiched around yet another Ben Lachlan screamer. Yeah, that's not a bad summation of it, I guess. And it certainly has taken a lot of the heat away from how poor the final system was set up, uh, in my opinion. I... I think they've made it a little bit too difficult just for the sake of keeping one more team interested for a little bit longer. So, And funnily enough, you mentioned Heat, and the Heat is that yeah. team, and I wouldn't be surprised if they win the whole bloody thing. But yeah. we'll go through how, the, how it works first, I guess. So what we started off with was the Eliminator, which was your four versus five, so that was the Strikers in Brisbane. Then the winner of that went through to play the loser of the next game, which was the one versus two qualifier, which it was the Perth Scorchers and the Sydney Sixers. And we've basically had the three games and we've eliminated two sides so far. Oh, Stewie, I don't like these titles, but uh, I'll reluctantly refer to them as they should be. So in the Eliminator, the Brisbane Heat beat Adelaide, successfully chasing down 130 with seven balls to spare. And amazingly, I mean, it was a pretty poor total, but amazingly, Adelaide probably should have won this. But if it weren't for their horrible fielding... I feel like across the three matches, I'm not even exaggerating when I say, I reckon there's been about 20 drop catches. The most of them were in this game. 
Yeah, there was a lot of poor fielding and a lot of poor batting to go with it. I mean, if you look at the, the strikers, 7 for 130 off their 20 overs, Alex Carey and Travis Head had a pretty decent audition for the test squad. Um, Carey 13 off 22, Head 12 off 21. I mean, that's just not what you you want from that. So <laughs> Test figures, yeah. They really are. I mean, had it not been for, for Jake Weatherald and a couple of these other blokes, they, they might not have even got to 130. The spin was brilliant, though, for the Heat. Miles Labashane was 3 for 13 off 3. Mitch Swepson, 2 for 23 off 4. So they bowled incredibly well. But oh, how good has Manus been? And he was so funny mic'd up, too. He was an absolute hoot. I so, love the guy. He's my favourite player. It's official. I love him. Ah, no, okay, so that is interesting because there's been a lot of people telling people to turn his mic off. So you're very much of the, the viewpoint that he's entertaining and interesting. Well, he, they chose him as the mic'd up player that game. They didn't. They don't mic him up every single game. He just happened to be the one. I thought it was a good start to the finals. I think people need to maybe calm, calm down. Calm down a little bit, yep. Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I quite liked it as well. I thought people, yeah, maybe jumped down his throat a little bit too quickly. But uh, but no, it's, yeah. it, it's, it was it's interesting. Give the man a toasted cheese sandwich. <laughs> Just don't, tell, <laughs> don't tell Justin Langer. But, uh, but no, look, in reply, Brisbane, they were pretty shaky as well. They were 3 for 23. You had uh, Jimmy Pearson was dropped on 7, would have been 4 for 51. Joe Burns was dropped first ball at 4 for 92 as well. They were very unconvincing. The big point, though, that you did talk about was the stupidly good catch from Benny Lachlan on the boundary. Oh, so good. People are calling it the catch of the tournament, the catch of all time. What do you think? Oh, it's not the catch of all time, but possibly the tournament. There was that other one by, who was it? Was it Jordan Silk? Yeah, Jordan Silk's Um, had a couple of good ones. I've got Mackenzie Harvey. Mackenzie Harvey's Superman catch at backward point to get rid of Alex Hales was probably uh, probably the one for me. Maybe Darcy Short's caught and bowled. Oh, yeah, there there was a couple of sharp caught and bowls too, actually. Yeah, Yeah, I'd have to probably look at the highlights to decide, but it was an absolute cracker of a catch. Initially went with two hands and then decided mid-air to just catch it with one. Too easy. Yep. No, that's it. And people are probably going to say it was a catch of the tournament because of the ground he had to make up. So I can kind of see where people are coming from. And it's a final. Probably around the two or three mark for me, but still very, very good. Now, in the qualifier, the Sydney Sixers successfully chased down 168 with a whopping three overs to spare. And let me tell you, these two teams are absolutely the teams for the BBL. So they basically showed the timeline of all the 10 BBLs. The Sixers were champions in BBL 1 and 9, finalists on five other occasions. The Scorchers champions in BBL 3, 4 and 6, finalists in their first seven campaigns and eight campaigns all up. These well and truly were the teams, but I don't know if Perth's going to make that final. Well, yeah, certainly if they play the way that they did against the Sixers, and it has to be said that the Sixers probably forced them into a lot of that, and maybe they won't get quite the same sort of pressure from Brisbane, but yeah, geez, I'll tell you what, it, it, it comes down to, again, some more poor fielding, I think, the fielding was poor, Stewie, but I think on top of that, the decision to bat first turned out to be a really poor one for the Scorchers. And the commentators pretty much said that that was the difference because the ball started skidding on and was much, much better to play in the second half of the match. Well, certainly more than we thought it was going to be as well. I mean, you could hear from the interviews they were doing with Jason Roy that I think he was really surprised at just how easy it was batting second. So with obviously the the covid issues that we've got here in perth now the the next step has been moved to monica so obviously we'll not make that same mistake again should we have the opportunity to uh, to choose but i mean yeah, look what what can you say this game comes down to james vince 98 or 53 they won it easily and and you know he's the difference 
And if it weren't for an AJ tie wide, he would have made a ton, probably. Well, that's probably one of two big talking points, and we probably should talk about that one. So, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, I think it was intentional. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I've seen multiple schools of thought. I've heard a lot of people say, well, he's the bowler, he doesn't owe the batsman 100, why should he have to, to bowl a, you know, a standard delivery? I heard Michael Vaughan went off and said this was absolutely ridiculous and, and so, such a stupid thing to do. Something that I don't believe he ever said when uh, Adam Gilchrist was trying to score his ton. And uh, I think it was Hoggard bowled one about three feet down the down the leg side. So oh, You only need to think about the Sandpaper Gate stuff to know that he's one of the biggest hypocrites in world cricket. He'll point the finger, but he won't look in the mirror. Yep. He'd ball tampered before, but he, he was the first to pile on. No, that's fair. Look, I can't even guarantee that I wouldn't have done it if I was bowling. It do, It's not a great look. I wouldn't have done it. But I think in the grand scheme of things, it was still a not-out score. They still won. They went straight to the final. It's still a good result for them. I think Vince could have reached it if he'd really wanted to. I think he could have gone after it. And then, of course, the other one, Stewie, was Mitch Marsh remonstrating after what has to be said was an absolute terrible call because there was a hell of a lot of daylight between bat and ball on that caught-behind decision. Yet another huge example of the need for DRS. I mean, I've said it that many times over the past few weeks. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, obviously it's one of these ones where Stephen O'Keefe is appealing because he doesn't want to be called for a wide. But, yeah, I mean, this is one of those ones where we're just about ready to take the power surge. God knows what this could have cost the Scorchers in terms of runs. And, obviously, yeah, he's launched into what can only probably be described as an expletive-laden tirade towards the umpire. There was talk about him possibly getting a suspension for it because Adam Zampa was suspended earlier in the season for an audible expletive, but... It was his second offence in a 12-month span, so that's why he got done. But thankfully, cooler heads had prevailed, and he was he hit with a $5,000 fine and no suspension. So I think that's a, a good result. Obviously, you know we're a little bit biased because we want him to play for us, but yeah. Well, I, you, can't, you can't help but wonder, unofficially, when they know the umpire fucked up big time, that maybe they'll give a bit more leeway on, on something like a suspension. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it would have been really rubbing salt into the wound had they done that, so... Yeah, good news. I'll tell you what, though. though. It brought in Inglis, who was absolutely fantastic. What a joy to watch he was. He was, yeah. 69 off 41 there. Stand out for the Scorchers on an otherwise fairly forgettable night. Yeah, that's true. It's true. And then finally, Stewie, in the knockout match, Brisbane successfully chased down 158 with five balls to spare against the Thunder, who, as I mentioned earlier, had really no one to blame but themselves because they really had Brisbane on the ropes early. And if it weren't for Hazlitt and I think it was Pearson... Uh, we might have had a Thunder versus Scorchers match in, I don't know, what's it called? The semi-final? The Challenger. Oh, you're joking. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Yeah, they've added ridiculous names to go with the ridiculous final series, but that's a whole <sighs> other story. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay, well, we try not to make this too much of the Perth show, which is why we're kind of bringing these things up organically by the sport. But yes, as you kind of alluded to earlier... Perth will not get a home final now in the Challenger against the Heat. They'll have to play on a neutral field in Manuka Oval in Canberra instead. As you mentioned, at least we did get a practice there a few days ago, so hopefully, as far as Perth fans are concerned, that will put us in better stead. You're probably getting a little bit ahead of yourself there, Nath. Maybe we should talk about the match first. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Well, a couple of things for me. I mean, this game really sums up the Sydney Thunders season. I saw a really, really great tweet from AAP sports journalist Scott Bailey, who said, strong start, well on top for the majority, and fade dramatically at the back end. That's basically their season in a nutshell, and it describes yeah, pretty them in this much. game. Now, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it's like the Thunder didn't exactly dominate with the bat. Like they they were looking pretty shaky for a while. They were less than a run of ball at the one third mark of the innings. Ben Cutting had a really nice cameo, thirty four off eighteen. Otherwise, they might have been oh, hovering around the. That uh, six. Oh jeez, yeah, that was massive. That six he hit was huge. Yeah, my god, wasn't as big as McDermott's, but pretty bloody close. Oh yeah. But I think the weirdest thing about the whole that whole innings was the X factor. Now I've stated I'm not a huge fan of it. I mean, it, I think it's a ridiculous rule. Yeah, me neither. But it's something that Brisbane have used a lot this season. They've often got maybe one over out of Xavier Bartlett, and then they've subbed him out for one of these other quicks. They've actually done it in four of their last five games when they've bowled first. Mm. But his only over was a maiden, and it should have been a wicket maiden because he should have had Usman Khawaja LBW. And then Mornay Morkel comes in and takes one for 37. So you could argue it probably wasn't the right call. Yeah, Mornay didn't bowl spectacularly well, did he? No, he didn't. Um, admittedly, he probably should have had two wickets in his first over, though. There was a drop catch. Shock horror. And Steckity should have had a hat-trick, too, which ended up being a team hat-trick. Yeah, he had did. a run out on the <laughs> third one. <laughs> it did. But, but um, I thought that was LB. I thought that was a hat-trick. Well, it was pretty Do close. It was, it was pretty yeah. bloody close if it wasn't. It would have, yeah. would have liked to have seen the ball tracking on that one. But, but then, yeah, 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 you know, you mentioned that the, the Heat was was struggling and, you know, three for 70 after 12 overs. They needed to go more than 11 runs and over from, from then on in. And Manus Labashain ran himself out, had one of those horrible ones where the bats bounced. And amazingly, that was the catalyst for it. Yeah, and Punter had a bit of a spray about that because the ball wasn't in the wiki's gloves at the time. But yeah, I think it was the right call. I, th- I think the ball had actually hit the stumps before then anyway. Yeah, but that's, yeah. That's I funny. think it was the right call too. So you mentioned the two blokes. It was uh, Sammy Hazlitt and Jimmy Pearson with a two. So Hazlitt was 19 off 26 at one stage. Took yeah, he accelerated. 55 off his next 23. Huge. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was good. He was very good. Yeah. I, th- I think the big thing though was just the full toss party. Like, the Thunder absolutely choked the big one. There were 10 full tosses over the the last seven overs of the match. Yep, oh, they really threw it away. They should have won. It's incredible that Brisbane... I wouldn't be surprised if it happens again. Perth beat themselves, and Brisbane waltz into a final in three consecutive matches where they probably had no right of winning. And Chris Lynn will probably score 120 in the final. Yeah, probably. Yep. Now, the key talking point of the whole match, though, has to be Usman Kawaja changing his jockstrap mid-pitch. <laughs> Did you see that? I didn't actually see that bit. I must confess that I only watched the mini. I didn't actually watch the whole match. No, he snapped his jock strap, but he'd actually put them underneath the, the, the bit that goes over his undies. So he's had to basically get right down to his jocks and uh, and change the whole thing and decided to do it mid-pitch. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it didn't make the mini, Stewie. Um, no, I'm not surprised. But, <laughs> but, but uh, his, his undies were actually orange, so perhaps that was a sign he felt confident that Thunder were going to make it through to play the Scorchers. Ah, nice. There you go. There you go. He was out five balls later. Yeah, so Stewie, I guess by this time next week, we'll have the whole thing wrapped up. So we'll talk about the Challenger, and then we'll talk about the final. I'm surprised they didn't call it something stupid like the happy ending. or. <laughs> and now... This week in sport history. Now, very special this week in sports, Stewie, because it's an on this day in sport. You've done some great research once again. February 1st, 1961, Australian number 7, Ken Mackay, who had 62 not out, and number 11, Lindsay Klein, who had 15 not out, hang on for 100 minutes to earn a famous draw on the final day versus the West Indies in the fourth and final test at Adelaide against the likes of Frank Worrell, Garfield Sobers, and Lance Gibbs. Klein's highest ever test score contributed to Australia winning the series 2-1. 
February 1st, 1981, in slightly less impressive Australian cricket history, Captain Greg Chapman <laughs> sensationally instructs younger brother Trevor to bowl underarm to Brian McKechnie, with New Zealand needing six from the final ball to tie the third World Series ODI in Melbourne. Australia wins mm. the match by six runs, but ultimately loses, as any New Zealander you'll talk to will remind you of this like you were Trevor Chapel yourself. Oh, you do, not just any New Zealander, any person who is an Australian. And what a dark day. If a bloke's good enough to hit a six off the final ball, then good on him. Yeah, Terrible. Thank, thank God they changed the rule. February 1st, 2004, the infamous Super Bowl wardrobe malfunction. Janet Jackson's breast adorned with a nipple shield is accidentally exposed during a performance with Justin Timberlake at the halftime show of Super Bowl 38. This is one of those Super Bowls you mentioned earlier and one that ended in an Adam Vinatieri field goal for the Patriots. Yeah, this one was hailed as the greatest Super Bowl of all time, but I can think of two reasons it's just not, really. (laughs) Do you know what's funny, Stewie? Now, I actually watched this game live. But after the... And look, it, it definitely wasn't an accident. It was about as accidental as an AJ tie wide when someone's on 98. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the funny thing is, after the match, sales in the nipple shield spiked by like a thousand percent or something ridiculous. Everyone went out and bought one. God, I wonder what sort of kickback she got from that. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. Oh, dear. But it was a cracking game. And by the way... It's important in the history of the Patriots and the Spygate stuff because I remember seeing a NFL Films thing about this match and one of the Carolina Panthers players, and I forget who it is, I want to say it was one of the defenders, I won't mention names because I'll probably get it wrong, but he actually said that they designed a play specifically for that Super Bowl. They had never run it in the entire season and the Patriots knew exactly how to defend it And the speculation is, now that we know about Spygate and that they were filming teams' practices, the reason they knew how to defend it was because they were fucking spying on them prior to the Super Bowl. So you can add this in the no column for the GOAT discussion too. Nah, just a lucky guess. (laughs) February 1st, 2006, high school senior Epiphany Prince scores a US girls' national prep basketball record 113 points in Murray Bergtraum's high school's 137-32 win over Brandeis High School, surpassing Hall of Famer Cheryl Miller's 105. Now, with these sorts of things, it's really easy to hear a record like this go to a player who's relatively unknown. We think of Danny Heater from last week, who scored 135 points, but was basically never heard of again. Was this one on a full court? I was about to say, Epiphany Prince actually did on a full (laughs) 94-footer. But look, But Prince actually went on. She had a really good college career at Rutgers. She was drafted fourth overall by the Chicago Sky at the WNBA in 2010. She's a two-time All-Star, an All-WNBA second team member in 2015. And actually was a member of last year's champion Seattle Storm team. And on top of that, she's actually a member of the Russian national team. She took a page out of San Antonio Spurs assistant coach Becky Hammond's book. There you go. And then finally, February 1st, 2008, Canadian jockey Russell Bays rides his 10,000th career winner. Yes, oh, that's not a misprint. 10,000. Prevailing in a three-horse photo finish aboard Two-Step Cat in the third race at Golden Gate Fields in Albany, California. Not surprisingly, he sits atop the list of the winningest jockeys in racing history with 12,842 wins from 53,578 starts and has total earnings of just under $200 million. Second place is Lafitte Pinkai Jr. with 9,530, which is a pretty handy 3,312 wins behind. Just to put this in perspective, if you were to win one race every day of the year, 
it would take you over 35 years to achieve the feat, so you'd have to be riding on four or five winners a day. Unsurprisingly, Bayes was inducted into the Racing Hall of Fame in 1999 and the Washington State Sporting Hall of Fame in 2012. This is absolute insanity when you think about it. I mean I've read stories of him winning like seven eight nine races a day it's, oh. it's just an absolutely amazing achievement and certainly uh, one I was very surprised when I read about so this week in sport history now we've got a fair bit of basketball to discuss today but unfortunately we do have to start with a, yeah a bit of a bit of a sad way to start though with a, a death in the college basketball yeah, it's true. John Chaney has passed away at age 89. He had 741 career wins and led the Temple Owls to the NCAA tournament on 17 different occasions. Chaney's particularly important in the history of basketball for his matchup zone defense schemes. And another interesting tidbit that I found out when I was reading up on this. Before taking over at Temple, Chaney spent 10 seasons at... Cheney University, spelt differently, but I thought it was pretty funny that he coached a uni that had the same name as him. The thing that came to mind right away was actually something a bit dodgy. So there was a story in around the mid-2000s where he basically sent in a player to just fuck up the opposition. So in the kind of eulogy I read today, it brought up some quotes from a 1994 Sports Illustrated article where he said, I'm capable of being anything. I'm a person who can be out of control. Sometimes it's better to be crazy than intelligent. So according to the Philadelphia magazine, Cheney said the day before the game that he planned to send in, and I quote, one of my goons and have him run through one of their guys and chop him in the neck or something. (laughs) Jesus. Yeah, now this is a bloke who was a walk-on on the football field. So he pretty much really was just on the basketball team as an enforcer. And after St. Joseph's forward John Bryant was diagnosed with a broken arm from one of Ingram's fouls, Temple suspended Cheney for the rest of the regular season. He did apologise to Bryant and he did reportedly offer to pay for his medical bills, so that's something. But yes, unfortunately, that was the immediate news that came to mind when I did hear of his passing. I think somewhere Michael Clark could be heard yelling, get ready for a broken fucking arm. <laughs> Uh, yes, so it is, it's a bit of a shame that I would kind of think of a negative story on his passing, but nonetheless, he had a very good career and was very important in the landscape of basketball with, as I said, the creation of zone defensive schemes. Uh, Yep, yep, match-up zones are something we used quite a lot in, uh, in junior basketball. Bit of NBL news, Stewie. Yeah, look, the NBL season's had its first postponement of the year with the Wildcats and Breakers game postponed. Firstly, actually due to a scare in the Breakers camp, they had to stay in Adelaide after one of their uh, their flights. But then unfortunately more serious due to the first non-hotel quarantine COVID case in about nine months in Perth. So as a result, yeah. the Cats will fly to Sydney and be out of state until after the absolutely best idea the league has ever had, NBL Cup. Well, look, I don't think the Cup is a terrible idea. They can squeeze in a lot of games. They can get a lot of games played. The problem is the points for quarters things, as we've talked about before. In the words of Father Jack from Father Ted, feck off Cup. That's all I can say. (laughs) I can't help but wonder, Stewie, just as the Spurs playoff streak was ended in a COVID-affected season, so too might the Wildcats? Yeah, put an asterisk next to it. They may have played their last home game for the season. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> We've got it. Yeah, but I live here and so Entertain do you. Entertain the and, possibly. Oh, just no, don't even want to think about it just yet. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of the Cats, though, I was very fortunate to be at the RAC Arena for one of probably the most exciting finishes to an NBL game in recent years. The Melbourne one Phoenix. One of the bizarre finishes. Yeah, it was really, really bizarre. I mean, we, we'd played the Phoenix before uh, about, what, 
three or four days earlier. So we played the Phoenix a few days earlier, kind of ran over the top of them late in the fourth quarter of that one. But the Phoenix actually yes. won their first game ever against the Cats, thanks pretty largely to Kiefer Sykes and Kyle Adnam, funnily enough. So we'll fast forward through just to the last minute of the game to just sort of show you how exciting this was. So Yeah, we've got to fast forward, don't we, Shu? Because it was a great game the whole way, seesawing back and forth. Yeah, but all the craziness happened really in the last minute. So Bryce Cotton's nailed a, nailed a four-point play with less than a minute left to break an 85-all tie. Kyle Adnam stuck a massive, massive three, one you wouldn't usually expect him to hit, to bring it back to one. Todd Blanchfield's missed an absolute bunny from in the paint, and then Sykes has hit this Really tough bank shot over John Mooney to give the Phoenix the lead with all of about four or five seconds left. Well, Stewie, before that psych shot, and I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't see this at the stadium, but Blanchfield was actually fouled by Ben Moore before the foul was called on him. Ben Moore gave him a bit of a hug around the midriff, but then he fell on someone and the foul was called on him, which gave the Phoenix the ball. Oh, I didn't see that. Uh, you have to go back and watch I that one. I have to, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that's led up to what is the final shot. Now, everyone knows that Bryce Cotton's getting the last shot. Mitch Creek, though, he massively overplayed off Jesse Wagstaff, and he's rolled to the rim for a wide-open layup. There wouldn't have been anyone within seven feet of him. Oh, it was executed perfectly. Perfectly. And then he missed it by about 50 metres. (laughs) Oh, it was terrible, wasn't it? Look, my theory is that he tried to do a left-hand layup and he's not left-handed and he probably should have just gone up with both hands and banked it off the backboard. Yeah, that was that was what I said. So so after the game, I actually went into the members area and I was talking with a, a former NBL player, I won't name obviously, but, uh, but he actually mentioned that he thought that perhaps Jesse had blown a tyre, so to speak, on going out for the layup, but he just... Oh, yeah, okay. He just flat missed it. The speculation from the commentators was that he thought that someone was going to block it, so he thought there was more defensive pressure than there was. But he, I mean, he was wide open, yeah. about as wide open as you get. Yep. Absolute heartbreaker. And that's why I'm not too devastated about the missed call foul on Blanchfield, because really, we should have won in spite of that. Yeah. So, and and if it had been any other player, I probably would have been more pissed off. But if it weren't for Jesse Wagstaff, we'd have probably at least two less championships. He has hit so many clutch threes in his career, or get a clutch steal, or rebound. He's such a clutch player. So, it's a shame that it happened in one of his first games as captain. But we'll give him a bit of a benefit of the doubt because he's been such a great servant of the club. And some other good news for the Phoenix. It looks like Ryan Brockoff is potentially set to join them if he can't find a spot in the NBA. He's actually from the southeast region of Melbourne, so he'd actually be a, a pretty decent Huge. face. Yeah, he'd be a really good face for the uh, for the franchise there. He'd be someone who would stretch oh. the floor beautifully for Kiefer Sykes and Mitch Creek and give them a lot more room to operate inside. So uh, That'd be a big yeah. signing, big, big signing it if they get him. Up there with the Jock Landau one. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this was followed by probably the game of the season. I'm, I'm probably going to call it the game of the season, which was between the Brisbane Bullets and the Cairns Taipans. It fin- was a cracker. Finally, something I was amped for from a previous week, which wasn't utter garbage. <laughs> now, you managed to watch a replay of this. So what, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I did. I watched a replay last night, and it was an absolute cracker of a game. I must admit, I didn't see the Adelaide Phoenix overtime. Oh, that one went to double overtime, I think. So maybe that was game of the, re- of the season so far, but... Uh, it was a very, very good game. And hats off to Cairns, who nearly managed to get a win, even though Deng fouled out with about four minutes left, and then Oliver fouled out with maybe one and a half minutes left, and they had to navigate an entire overtime period. Yeah, they did incredibly well. I mean, Jared Kenny, I, I still maintain he should be fined for that little rat's tail in his hair, but... Last year it was the mullet, and this year it's the off-centre rat's tail. Yeah, he's just trying to find the bottom of the barrel. He's getting pretty bloody close. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, no, look, it was kind of... 
it was a battle of Nathan Sobey and, and Victor Law versus Machado and Cam Oliver for most of the game until Oliver sort of fouled out. But yeah, the last couple of seconds of, of this game, I mean, Jason Cadiz hit this huge long contested three to give oh, Brisbane the lead. It was huge. And, yeah. then, and then Machado's tied it up with a James Harden step back travel three of his own. Yeah. Equally as huge. But then, you've, yeah, you've got Victor Law kind of one-on-one against Kuat Noy, and he manages to cross him over completely, gets an uncontested layup slash dunk for the win at the buzzer, and, you know, game over. Yeah, I like Noy, but he had a shocking end to that match. Mm. Shocking. Yeah. But look, a couple it, of defensive headaches, some really stupid shots. He did not play well down the stretch. You, you have to say, though, the NBL was alive and well. It's very exciting times in the NBL at the moment. Very exciting times. Now, speaking of exciting times, we've still got two teams undefeated. We've got Jock Landale's Melbourne United, so they're going to play. Going strong. And, yep. and, and the Hawks, who were, were my pick to win the whole thing. Now, yeah, well, that's looking decent. Certainly looking better than my pick of Cairns making the finals, Chewy. Now sitting at 1-5. and five. Yeah, it's probably unlikely, but uh, look, there's a long way to go. <laughs> nice of you not to bring it up. <laughs> it's, a, it's a marathon, not a sprint, Nathan. <laughs> it's true. But uh, no, look, the Hawks in particular have been incredible so far on both ends of the floor. They're averaging over 90 points a game. They're holding teams to 78 a game. They've easily got the best percentage in the league. I actually saw a stat that said the Hawks are committing only 14 fouls a game, and they've only conceded free throws due to being in the bonus once in their first four games. Wow. Like, this is a Brian Gorgian team to a T. Well, it's like the old Greg Popovich, you know, minimize fouls and turnovers, and you always give yourself a shot. Yep. And the Hawks are very much doing that. They have a lot of talent too. So yeah, they're in very good stead. Now for Melbourne United, they're unbelievably undefeated despite Scotty Hobson averaging 4.3 points a game on 19% from the field. Mitch McCarron, 5 points a game on 35%. And David Barlow, 3 points on 28%. Imagine how they're going to be if if Hobson in particular gets it going. Hobson's one of my favourite players in the league. The Barlow one, okay, he's getting pretty old, you know, and I'm sure he'll still hit a clutch three here or there. He's almost like their Jesse Wagstaff, actually. The Barlow one, I can understand. Understand, but yeah, the McCarran and the Hobson ones are real head scratches. Mm, they've kind of fallen off cliffs to start the season, but you know, again, they will pick up eventually. And so, yeah, basically, we've got Adelaide and Cairns who have played six games. Perth and New Zealand have only played two. Mm. It's it's going to be one of these funny seasons. The Kiwis are winless. They're actually still equal second on the championship betting odds for some reason. So it's uh, well, they have a good roster. So yeah, yeah. but uh, and games in hand. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a very, very interesting and long season. Now, some records in the NBA, Shuey, starting off with Aussie Joe Ingles, who's become the all-time leader in three-point shots made for the Jazz. He managed the feat in 493 games, eclipsing John Stockton's record of 1,004 games, though it's got to be said different times. Yeah, I mean, this obviously is a, an era where guys are jacking up seven or eight threes a game, and Stockton was probably only taking a handful, but uh, still an impressive right. record yeah. regardless. Yes, indeed. He's had a very good career for a bloke that was never drafted. Yeah, Slow-Mo Joe has done all right. Speaking of records, it was actually a record that passed me by the other week. So the Celtics absolutely spanked the Cavaliers, 141 to 103. This game was basically over by quarter time, a lot of garbage time. But as a result, Jalen Brown only played 19 minutes, but still put up 33 points. So he set wow. the record for the most points scored in under 20 minutes of playing time in the shot clock era. Pretty cool. What a player. That's why I wanted the Spurs to trade him for Kawhi. <laughs> He's a very well, good player. Yeah, in hindsight, that would have been a great trade. And another thing I actually missed a couple of weeks ago was that James Harden actually joined a list of players who have a triple-double in their team debut. So the list is Russell Westbrook, Alfred Payton, Lewis Lloyd, John Shumate, and Nate Thurmond, and Oscar Robertson as well, actually. So uh, another little accolade for James Harden of the Nets. 
Yeah, a couple of interesting ones there and a couple of surprises and a couple of names I don't even recognise, if I'm honest with you. Yep, I'm probably in the same boat as you. Alfred Payton, eh? I think his ones were more like 10-10-10s. They certainly weren't 30-20-10s. Yeah, he gets a lot of those sort of just bare minimum (laughs) triple-doubles. Speaking of the Nets, mate, now we've talked about how shitty they're going to be on defence and it is playing out. They're 295 points combined in the Wizards game the other day, which the Wizards miraculously won from nowhere, it's got to be said, was the second highest scoring non-overtime game in 25 years. It also marked the fourth time this season that the Nets have allowed their opponent to score a season high in points. They only did it once last season. And by the way, they haven't exactly been playing world beaters of late, so we talked about those back-to-back Cleveland games. The defense is looking not too good, as we suspected. Well, I'll take that a step further, actually. So Washington only had 13 points with 2 minutes 56 left in the first quarter. So in just under 38 minutes, they've actually scored 136 points. Holy shit. So that's about 3.4, 3.5 points a minute, which is a lot to give up over that period of time. And did you know that Brooklyn are actually currently on track for the worst single season defensive rating of all time? Yes, I did see that. I did see that. They could have the best single season offense and the worst single season defense, which would be absolutely remarkable. It's got to be said, that inbounds pass that led to the Russell Westbrook three, whew, it's almost match fixy. It was that bad. Yeah, well, that was the title of an email that you sent me in the lead up to us recording was oh. was bloody hell the inbound pass or something like that. Or Jesus, yeah. Or Jesus the inbound pass. Was, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it was a shocker. And I'm not saying it was match fixy, but yeah, it was an absolute shocker. Handed the Wizards a victory, only their fourth of the season. To be fair though, thinking that Westbrook was going to get that shot, you'd expect him to miss that. So it's kind of nice that he actually yeah, hit Yeah, not hit. a great three-point shooter. Yeah, it's good that he actually hit one of those. Yeah, he did a, had a very efficient game though. Could this kickstart the Wizards season? I hope so. I do hope so. Yeah, I'd like to see him do it. I think, I think Bradley Beal deserves it. So I guess to round out the NBA, I just kind of wanted to do something a little bit, bit different. So, like, as you sort of look at it, for the most part, things have kind of returned to normal. We had Philly, Brooklyn, Milwaukee, and Boston atop the East at the start of the season, and that's where they are now. We had the LA teams, Denver and Utah, around the top of the West. That's where they are now. But we're more than a quarter of the way through the season, and there are some shocks. So I've actually got four teams in particular that that are a little bit shocking in terms of where they are. Not necessarily for bad reasons, not necessarily for good reasons. There's kind of a bit of a mix. So I just kind of wanted to run you through a couple from the West and a couple from the East. So the Memphis Grizzlies are my first team. Now... Memphis has seemingly had about five years off with postponements in the last couple of weeks. They have just had so many postponements. They're actually holders of the longest winning streak in the league at seven at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, they beat my Spurs very handily, didn't they, today? Yeah, they did. Sorry, I I didn't want to bring that up, but but they did. No, well, hey, as you say, there's been so many postponements. They had a lot of rest, so it's, you know. They had about two weeks off. They had time to scout. They they seriously had about two weeks off. Now, they're doing all of this without Jaron Jackson Jr., and they're sitting fifth in the West at the moment. Now, I know it's early days, but they're they're looking pretty good. And So I had a bit of a look, and I kind of realized what they've done is they've done it with a really balanced attack. So no one on their team is averaging more than 30 minutes a game, and they've got 11 guys that are averaging eight points a game or more. Wow. So it's pretty clear they kind of know who they are on offense. They don't turn the ball over very much, which goes back to what you were talking about with Popovich. They're fourth last in three-point attempts in the league, but they're number one in the league in points in the paint. So they know that they're not a shooting team. They're very much an attack-the-rim sort of team, and, and... and that's great. They play to their strengths. So Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's better to play to your strengths than launch threes that you can't hit. Exactly. Now, I know it's early days, but yeah, these guys are looking like they could be quite dangerous in the back half of the season, especially if Jaron Jackson comes back. Yeah. So definitely a team to watch is the Memphis Grizzlies. 
Now, the other side of the spectrum is the Dallas Mavericks. Now, this is a team that I was expecting to be contending, certainly at least in the first round of the playoffs. They're already three games back on the eighth seed and they're falling. They're on a six-game losing streak at the moment. And they have a tricky schedule coming up too, don't they? Well, they they do. They've actually just finished a pretty tough run as well. Their losing streak is Houston, Denver, Utah twice, and Phoenix twice. They had a heartbreaker today, unfortunately. Uh, Devin Booker hit a, a three-pointer to win the game for them. But they've also lost to Chicago twice, including once at home. They've also lost a home game against Charlotte. I think you can probably chalk a bit of this up to injuries. So Chris Stapps, Paul Zingas, and Maxi Kleber have only played 10 of 21 games. Josh Richardson and Dorian Finney-Smith have played 12 games. Dwight Powell's played 12. And Luka Doncic is probably trying to do too much. I mean, he's nearly averaging a triple-double, but he's got four turnovers a game. He's one of only three guys, along with Jason Tatum and Bradley Beal, taking 21 or more shots a game. They've got a big five-game stretch. They've got two games against the Warriors, two against the Hawks, and one against the Timberwolves. This is potentially a season-defining little five-game stretch. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. So I guess one of the things that I did see that could potentially be a useful strategy for them, Luka Doncic draws shooting fouls on 15% of his post-ups, and Dallas scores 1.15 points per possession on every post-up he shoots or passes out directly for a shot. Those numbers don't sound particularly high, but trust me, they are. Like This this is something I would be looking for a pretty steady diet of if I was Dallas. You'd have to think that they do still have the roster to be able to turn it around, but you don't want to get in the hole too too far, do you? Well, it's it's kind of already getting that way, and, and this is obviously in the West, which is stacked. So. And speaking of getting in the hole, Stewie, there's a big surprise in the East. Holy shit, Miami Heat. <laughs> The, yeah. the reigning Eastern Conference champions are 7-13. and 13. Wow. They're trailing the Hawks, the Cavs, the Knicks, the Bulls, the Hornets, and the Magic. That's not good reading, is it? It's not good reading 20 games into a 72-game season. Now, look, it doesn't sound too disastrous when you consider they're only two games out of playoffs and four games out of home court advantage, and Jimmy Butler's missed 12 of their 20 games so far. But, like the Mavericks, they have got a really key, possibly season-defining four-game stretch coming up. They've got two games against the Wizards and two games against the Knicks. They need to get all four of those because their next seven games are on the road and they've got trips to the Clippers, Lakers, Jazz, Rockets, and, oh, gets and Warriors as well. So, yeah, yeah. It, it would not be surprising at all if after all of those games, if they were something like... 9 and 20 something it, like it's it's scary how quickly this could get out of hand for the heat oh yeah and now one of the really interesting ones that I've got here for the east is the Milwaukee Bucks now this might be a bit of an overreaction the Bucks are 12 and 8 like they're obviously doing fine but the scary thing is if you look at last season they lost their 8th game with, 40, oh, yeah. with 46 wins on the board. Yeah, yeah. COVID completely derailed them last season. Yeah. It could have been a very different story if it went for COVID. The Milwaukee Bucks might have been champions. It, it, they haven't been the same since. And, and it's really weird. You know, I, I kind of looked at it and I thought, well, why is this happening? I mean, it can't just necessarily be COVID. And a, not a lot of stuff jumped out. Giannis is playing about four minutes a game more than last year, with the exception of his free-throw shooting being abysmal. Everything's fairly similar yeah. to last year. Chris Middleton's numbers are all up. Drew Holiday's averaging almost identical numbers to what Eric Bledsoe was averaging last year. But then I had a look, and I think this comes down to their bench. And I know you spoke about when we were talking about the teams and their additions, you weren't particularly... Yeah, I was worried. You, I was. You weren't excited yep. about it. If you look at the numbers, they were fifth in bench scoring last season. They're 20th at the moment. They mm. were first in bench rebounding last season. They're 14th this season. 13th in assists, down to 25th. 12th in steals, down to 25th. And 15th to 27th in blocks. 5th in efficiency to 17th. 
basically their starters are doing a job and the bench is killing them. And it's funny because normally your rotation shrinks in the playoffs and so you'd say as long as they have a good record they'll be okay. But of course Budenholzer actually doesn't shrink his rotation in the playoffs so it's going to be fascinating to see how this one unfolds. It, it really will be. I mean you would, you would say basically it's time for the bench to really start responding. They did have a pretty good showing today. I mean they had 64 points in a smashing of the Blazers. But it really is a case of over to you, Bobby Portis, Bryn Forbes, Pat Connaughton, DJ Augustine, and Tanasis Ante Tokotomatu. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Basil, you ain't never living that down. No, look, they uh, they just need that consistency. Otherwise, yeah, they could end up around that four seed. And, you know, admittedly, in a seven-game series, they could beat anyone. But it's you still you, you want to be up around that one and two seed and try and get that home court advantage as, as far as you can. So... Yeah, worrying signs for the Bucks. By the way, I think Basil has bigger things to worry about than Ante Tokotomatu. He did. Just quietly. Yes, he does. All right, Stu, you know what that music means. What are you out for? I mean, BBL finals for sure. Like, come on, the Scorchers. Got to start with that. But uh, looking ahead at the NBA, I love the look of the Clippers at the Brooklyn Nets tomorrow and the Pacers at the Bucks on Thursday. They're looking pretty good. I had actually written down, funnily enough, the Washington-Brooklyn game that, that ended up being a classic. So perhaps my form on these is starting to turn. Turning around. Yeah. yeah. How about yourself? Well, it was going to be the Wildcats game, which I had tickets for on Friday, but that's no longer happening. So I guess I'll just have to say the same thing as you, Stewie, the BBL Finals. Until next time, I'm Nath. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes.